Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 14. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, knowing that in him we are and have been, by your grace, adopted as your children. And so now it is our greatest privilege to come and to know you through your word. We're thankful that you've made yourself known to us in creation. We're thankful that you've made yourself known to us in your law. And we're thankful that you've made yourself known to us in your gospel. And so we pray that we would come to a better understanding of your character and your glory and your greatness and your power. We humbly confess together that we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot pull ourselves up so that we can do this. You must send your spirit and empower us to that end. So empower this feeble preacher. Empower these feeble listeners. And Jesus, may you be glorified in our midst. We ask this in your name, and therefore for your sake. Amen. Well, as I am sure you can tell from the scriptures that we've read so far this morning, we are going to be studying Psalm chapter 19. And I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am for us to do so. Because what we have here in Psalm 19 is probably one of the greatest psalms in all the Psalter. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, in his short book, Reflection on the Psalms, um, he was a British um, writer and literary critic, said, he said of this of Psalm 19, I quote, The greatest poem in the Psalter, Psalm 19, is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, coming from C.S. Lewis, someone who loved and studied and wrote poetry as much as he did, this is, this is the highest of praises. But even beyond Psalm 19 being good poetry, which, to be honest with you, we're not really going to be able to appreciate because we're not reading the psalm in the original Hebrew, what should excite us even more than the poetry is the theological content within the psalm. And the reason for that is because 
Psalm 19 deals with one of the most important questions that we as human beings can ask. And here's the question. How can we, as human beings, come to know Almighty God? How can we know Him? I mean, think about it. Is there any question more important than that? I don't think there is. But you see, why I love Psalm 19 even more is because it doesn't just ask the question, how can we know God? It actually then goes on to answer that question for us. And here's how it answers that question. It answers that question by showing us three ways that God makes Himself known to us. Three ways that God makes Himself known to us. God makes Himself known to us through His unspoken word in creation, His spoken word in the law, and His incarnate Word in the Gospel. So first, let's look at His unspoken Word in creation. Look at verses 1-6 through six with me again. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Now what we have here in these first six verses is David telling us that God makes himself known to us through his creation. In other words, God communicates to us through nature. I mean, just look at verse 1. It makes this abundantly clear. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. So what the psalmist is saying here is that all creation, and especially the heavens and skies, are declaring God's glory. They're proclaiming that God has made them. In other words, they're communicating to us that God is glorious and that He has created all things. Now the question we should immediately be asking ourselves is how? How does creation proclaim and declare these things? Because I've never heard them with my ears. Have you? So how do, how do they do it? Well, David actually tells us how they do it. But I have to warn you, it's a, it's a bit of a paradox. And here's why. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So what David is saying here is that all day long and all through the night, creation is pouring forth speech and revealing knowledge about God. But then he goes on to say in verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So here's the paradox. On the one hand, in verse 2, David tells us that creation is pouring forth speech day and night, incessantly. But on the other hand, in verse 3, he tells us that creation has no speech, no words, no voice. So what's going on here? Is David contradicting himself? No, what he's doing is he's poetically explaining to us that all of creation reveals truth and knowledge about who God is, but catch this, it does so without words. In other words, God communicates to us non-verbally through creation. And let me be clear on this. When I say us, I don't just mean us as Christians. I mean us as in all mankind. 
as in all of humanity. Which is why verse 4 goes on to say, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So what that means then, is there is no place you can go where God is not revealing Himself to you through nature. Because in creation, God reveals Himself to everyone. It doesn't matter what country you're in. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't even matter if you're blind or deaf or mute. Not one human being who has ever existed has failed to hear the unspoken word of God through nature. Not one. And you see, that's exactly why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that all mankind is without excuse. Listen to what he says in verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God, this is uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So do you understand what this means? It means that no one can stand before God at the end of their life and say, God, you never told me that you existed. You never gave me any proof that you were there. No one will be able to say that. Why? Because God has made himself known to all mankind through his creation. So no one can escape knowing the truth about who God is. Because all of creation is non-verbally screaming it in their ears. And you see, that's exactly why David goes on to talk about the sun. Look at verses 4 through 6. In them, that is in the skies and the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now here's why David is talking about the sun. He's talking about the sun because he's using it as an example of how God reveals himself through nature. And so here's what he does. He describes the sun in two ways. First of all, he describes the sun as a bridegroom. Now let me ask you, why, why do you think David would do that? Why, why would he describe the sun as a bridegroom? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a bridegroom on his wedding day? A groom on his wedding day? I'm guessing most of you have. What does he look like? He's radiant. He's joyful. He's beaming with excitement. I mean, I don't think my feet touched the ground on my wedding day. Why? Because I was so excited to declare my love for my bride. Indeed, it was my delight to do so. And what David is saying is that's the same way it is for the son. Just as a bridegroom radiates to declare his love for his bride, so too the son radiates to declare the glory of its maker. Now the second way David describes the sun is as a strong man or, or a champion. And in David's day, this would essentially be like a, a warrior 
or our modern day equivalent of, a, of an Olympian. Someone who's dedicated their entire life to physical fitness. And so the, the reason David describes the sun this way is to show us the sun's power and vigor and strength. Because just as the strong man carries out his purpose with power, so too the sun carries out its purpose of declaring God's glory with power. But what should really capture our attention is how David concludes his description of the sun. Because here's how he concludes it. At the end of verse 6 he says, There is nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, the heat of the sun touches everything on earth. Nothing can escape from it. Now why is David telling us that? Because he's showing us that just as nothing can hide from the heat of the sun, so too no one can hide from the self-revelation of God in creation. You see, it doesn't matter what you do. You can shut your eyes and you can block your ears, but even then you won't be able to escape from knowing God. So do you realize what this means? It means that there are no atheists or agnostics. They do not exist. Instead, there are only those who suppress the truth that they clearly know. Why? Because they don't want to live in accordance with that truth. Now having said that, there's something very important that you need to know. And here it is. There are limitations of what we can know about God from creation. And really that shouldn't surprise us. Because how does God communicate to us through creation? Non-verbally. And if you know anything about non-verbal communication, then you know it has its limitations. I'm sure we could go around and share very funny stories about the limits of non-verbal communication. But let me just give you, give you an example here. Let's pretend that, that I'm on a hiking trail out in the woods. And, and you're on the same hiking trail as I am, but you're a couple miles behind me. And you're, you're trying to catch up to me. Now, without talking to you, or writing you a note, or anything like that, how easy would it be for me to communicate to you that my plan is to go off the main trail, heading due west for three miles, and then due north for the next two miles? Would that be easy for me to let you know without using words? No, it would be extremely difficult, wouldn't it? I mean, maybe I could make an arrow made out of sticks pointing due west, and then put three sticks underneath it signifying three miles, and then another arrow made of sticks pointing due north with two sticks underneath it signifying two miles. But what's the likelihood of you understanding all that? It's pretty slim, isn't it? Why? Because nonverbal communication has its limits. So here's the question we need to ask. If nonverbal communication has its limits, which we've clearly seen, and God communicates to us through creation, non-verbally, which we've also clearly seen, then what are the limits of what God, of what we can know about God through creation? Well, a great place to answer that is to look back at Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. We're told in verses 19 through 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So here's what God makes known to us through nature. You ready? His eternal power and His divinity. Two things. Not a whole lot, is it? 
And if we look at Psalm 19, it, it pretty much says the same thing. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. The heavens declare, what about God? His glory. Creation reveals that God is glorious. And the skies proclaim, what about God? They proclaim, God has made us. We are His handiwork. Now again, that's not a whole lot of information, is it? So you see, here's the bottom line. Here's the limit of what we can know about God from creation. We can know enough about God to condemn us, but we can't know enough about God to save us. We can know enough about God from nature that we are without excuse in regards to His existence, but we can't know enough from nature to be saved. In other words, nature makes clear to us that God exists, and that He's made all things, and that He's powerful, but there's so much more we need to know about God. And nature can't show us those things. So clearly, God's unspoken word has its limits. And don't understand me, it does exactly what God wants it to do. God is the one who set those limits. But we still need more. And so that's why God has given us His spoken word in the law. His spoken word in the law. Look at verses 7 through 14 with me again. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, that I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now what we have here in these verses is probably the most beautiful description of God's word in all of Scripture. I mean, I personally am not even sure that Psalm 119 tops it. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to slow down just a little bit, not too much, a little bit, and take a closer look at David's description of God's word here. Sound good? Okay, here we go. Now the first thing we notice is that God, is that David, excuse me, uses numerous synonyms for God's word. Here's your $5 word of the day, synonyms. In case you don't know what that is, it's real simple. It's simply a word that has the same meaning as another word. There's your vocab lesson for the day. And so if you want to find a word that means the same thing as another word, what do you do? Well, you open up your trusty old thesaurus, right? And that's essentially what David's doing here. He's saying, what are some synonyms for God's word? He looks it up in his thesaurus, and here's what he comes up with. He calls God's word the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. And here's something very important that you need to know about this list of synonyms that David gives us. David's intent in listing them is not for us to do an in-depth word study of each one. That, that's not his point. Instead, David's intent is for us to stand in awe 
at the comprehensiveness of God's Word. To stand in awe of how many different ways God communicates to us through His Word. And I love what the preacher Sinclair Ferguson had to say about this in one of his sermons on Psalm 19. He said, the reason the Bible has stories and commandments and examples and praise and logical thinking and apocalyptic visions is because we are wired to communicate to each other in all sorts of different ways. And so God comes to us in the image He has made us to be in all kinds of shapes and sizes in order that as all people we may come through its truth to know God. In other words, the reason why God has spoken to us in His Word in so many different ways is because each one of us communicates in so many different ways. So for some of us, we're always drawn to the Psalms. And for some of us, we're always drawn to the Gospels. And for some of us, we're always drawn to the Proverbs. And for some of us, we're always drawn to the Epistles. And why is that? Because we're all wired differently for communication. And here we have on this, that's a good thing. Because God doesn't just use one communication style, He uses them all. He's fluent in all of them. And you see, that's why He's able to communicate with each one of us through His Word in a way that we can come to know Him. And that's exactly David's point in using all these different synonyms to describe God's Word. Now the next thing we notice is how David describes the character of God's Word. So let's look at each one of these briefly. First, David says that God's Word is perfect. In other words, it's, it's whole. It's without blemish. It's not lacking anything. And really what this description is telling us is that the fundamental character of God's Word is perfection. If you had to characterize God's Word using only one word, this would be it. Perfect. God's Word is perfect. And so what this means then is that every other character trait that comes after this flows out of this one, flows out of the fact that Scripture is perfect. Now David, next David tells us that God's Word is sure. In other words, it's, it's trustworthy. So you can lean on it. You can put all your weight on it. And it won't crumble underneath you. You can build the foundation of your life upon it. And it won't fail you. Why? Because God's word is sure. And then David says God's word is right. In other words, it will lead you in the right way. Because it's straightforward. It's not misleading or crooked or perverse. So if you're looking for a trustworthy guide... To show you how to live life as you were meant to live it. God's word is it. There is no other guide that you can trust. The next David says that God's word is pure. And this is a word that could also be translated radiant. And so what David is saying here is that God's word is radiant like the sun. So if you're in darkness and you can't see the light, God's word will be light for you. Because it's radiant. And then David says that God's word is clean. In other words, it's flawless. It doesn't have any blemishes or shortcomings. And so it will never be out of date. And it will never be done away with. Because it is without error. And lastly, David says that God's word is true and righteous. In other words, it reflects God's character. Because God himself 
is truth. God himself is righteous. And so here's what David wants us to see from his description of the character of God's word. He wants us to see that the, char- that the character of God's word is a reflection of God himself. In other words, God makes his character known to us in his word. And so that's why his word can be described in these ways as perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and righteous because all of those things are true about God himself. But David's not done yet. He also wants to show us the benefits of God's word to his people. And here's what he says. He says, God's word revives the soul and it makes wise the simple and it rejoices the heart and it enlightens the eyes. So what's David showing us here? He's showing us that God's word is powerful. It's effective. It can do so many things in the life of the believer. And you see, that's why David goes on to say in so many words, I love God's word. I cherish it. David says, to me, God's word is more desirable than gold. In fact, I wouldn't trade it for mounds of even the finest gold. Because to me, it tastes sweeter than honey. Sweeter than even honey that's dripping right off the honeycomb. But even more than that, David says, even more than that, God's word warns me from going after sin and things that will harm me. And when I obey God's word, when I obey God's word, I am richly rewarded. So do you see what's going on here? David gets so caught up in the beauty of God's word as he describes it that he can't help but personally rejoice and delight in the glory of it. But then something really weird happens. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the tone of the whole song changes. Did you notice that? It happens in verse 12. David says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now what in the world just happened? I mean, David just went from the heights of delighting in God's law down to the depths of self-deprecation and confession like that. So what's going on here? Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know exactly what's going on. Because you yourself have this experience every time you're reading God's word and you come across the law. On the one hand, your heart soars because in the law you behold the character of God and you love the character of God. So it delights you to see it. And your heart also soars because in the law you're shown how you were created to live. And how you were created to live is beautiful. That's the way you want to live. On the other hand, your heart sinks. Why? Because when you turn away from the law and you look at yourself, what do you see? You see how you're not living up to the law. You see your sin. You see your rebellion. You see your wicked heart. And you recognize that there are ways you sin that you're not even aware of. In other words, your continued sinfulness concerns you. So you find yourself saying, along with the Apostle Paul, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, 
can't do the very thing I hate. Now here's the question, Christian. What do you do when you find yourself in that place? What do you do when you find yourself at the same time rejoicing in the law of God and yet quaking under the weight of your continued sinfulness? Because you know what the law demands. You know what God demands. The law and God demand perfection. And yet you aren't perfect. So what do you do? Well, in attempts to answer that, let me ask you yet another question. Can God's unspoken word in creation answer that question for you? No, it can't. Can it? Okay, well, what about God's spoken word in His law? Can that answer the question for you? No, it can't. Can't. So in other words, neither God's unspoken word in creation or His spoken word in the law is enough. So you see, we need God to make Himself known to us in another way, or else we'll never be able to answer this question. And if we can never answer this question, then we'll never be able to have peace. And you see, that's exactly why God has given us His incarnate Word in the Gospel. His incarnate Word in the Gospel. Look at verses 12 through 14 with me again. Who can discern His errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now what we see in these final verses is that David is praying to God. And what's interesting about his prayer is that it raises a lot of questions. For example, how can David possibly ask the Lord to declare him innocent of hidden faults? I mean, come on, David knows better than that, right? God can't just declare someone innocent when they're guilty. That would be unjust. And since God is perfectly just, he can't do that. Or here's another question. How can David tell the Lord... That if he just keeps him from presumptuous sins, that David will then be blameless. And here's why we have to ask that question. Because according to Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman, the word blameless that David uses here is related to the word perfect that was used back in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. So how can the same thing that's said about God's holy law also be said of a sinful human being like David? How could that even be possible? Or here's another question. How can David have the audacity to ask God that he would find the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart acceptable? I mean, how can they be acceptable when they've been tainted by David's own sin? So you see the problems here, right? So how do we make sense of all this? Here's how. If you look at the very end of the psalm, in verse 14, what you'll see is that David is looking to God as his rock and his redeemer. And here's how that answers our questions. Because what David understood, even in the Old Testament, was that God had promised a redeemer. God had promised that a redeemer would come and save his people from their sins. And so David knew that all the promises that he had heard, and all the sacrifices of bulls and lambs that he had made were pointing him forward to the coming of the Redeemer. And David knew that this Redeemer would be his heir. A son 
from his own line. God promised that to him. A son who would lay down his life and be slaughtered for his people. Why would he be slaughtered? So that his people could be forgiven of their sins. And declared innocent of their hidden faults. And be blameless before the Lord their God. And you see, that's why David could pray these things to the Lord. Not because he was looking to himself in self-righteousness, but because he was looking forward in faith to the promised Redeemer. And that wasn't something that creation could show him. That wasn't something that the law could show him. Those could only show him his need. It was only the gospel that could give him hope in the Redeemer who was to come. But you see, what's amazing, brothers and sisters, is that what David saw then through only types and shadows, we see now with crystal clarity. Because David looked forward to the coming of God's incarnate word, but we look back on the coming of God's incarnate word. And who is God's incarnate word? It's Jesus. And how do we know that? Because Hebrews 1 tells us, it says, long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So it's Jesus who is God's incarnate word. And so it's in Jesus that God has made himself known to us with utmost clarity. Why? Because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Which is why Jesus was able to tell Philip, if you have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. Because Jesus and the Father are one. And so here's the point. If we want to know God as well as we can, then we must look to Jesus. Because it's only in Jesus, it's only as we look to Jesus that we won't run away in fear from God when we look at the beauty of His law and the ugliness of our sin. And it's only as we look to Jesus that we can know that we don't have to tremble at the threatenings of the law. And it's only as we look to Jesus that we can know that the law's demands for our perfection have been fulfilled. It's only as we look to Jesus that we can know that the law's demands for our death have already been paid. And you see, it's only as we look to Jesus that we can come to love God's law, even as David did. Because it's only as we look to Jesus that we can now be motivated to obey the law, not to be loved, or accepted by God, but because we already have that in Christ. So instead, we now obey because we love the Father. And we want to know the Father. More than anything else, we want to know Him. And so it is our greatest delight to spend the rest of our days to get to know Him. As He speaks to us through His unspoken word in creation, and through His spoken word in the law and through his incarnate in the gospel. And as we listen, may our prayer ever be, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we humbly acknowledge that, Father, had you not chosen to reveal yourself to us, had you not chosen to make yourself known, we wouldn't know anything about you. Because of the, the darkness of our own sinful hearts and our, our rebellion, how turned in ourselves we are. And so, Father, we're thankful that you've made yourself known to us in creation and in the law and in the gospel. And we're thankful that because you have sent your incarnate word, Jesus the Christ, to perfectly obey the law in our place, fulfilling all of its righteousness, and then dying on the cross, paying the penalty that the law demands for our sin and rebellion against you. Because Jesus, the incarnate word, did that, we now love you as you reveal yourself in creation, and as you reveal yourself through your law, and as you reveal yourself through the gospel. So we pray, Father, that even as we rejoice in your word, that we would now, as your children, use our words to bring glory and honor and praise to you. That we would speak grace and kindness and truth and love to each other. And that, Father, we would use our mouths, our words, to declare the glories of your Son in the gospel here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.